You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. I remember an event that I was speaking at early on in my, while I was pastoring and uh, at a different church. And uh, I remember being invited to this event. This older couple wanted me to, I believe it was kind of their, I don't know if it was, yes, this was what it was. It was, they were renewing their vows. I think it was their 50th wedding anniversary. They were renewing their vows. And I was giving no, I was given no context for what this event would look like. But they wanted me to share a message and then renew their vows. So I talked a lot. It was near Easter. So I talked a lot about the resurrection. And they were the only Christians in the room. I found that out later. And I probably would have changed my message had I known. (laughs) You know, there's times, maybe you've been a Christian for a while and some of these things become familiar to you. As I could see people's reaction, even when I started talking about something, a concept like resurrection, they thought I was completely out to lunch. Like I could see their reaction, I could see, see their, start to see their reaction, I start smiling, I'm like, this is not what I thought it was going to be like. Uh, I don't know if you've been in that, those shoes when you start talking about your faith and the person across from you starts to squirm a little bit. And they're like, I, you can, you, even though they don't say it, because people are nice. We're Canadians, we're nice. But they may not say it, but by, by just their reaction to what you're saying, you can tell they think you're crazy. They think you're absolutely crazy for even saying or believing the things that you do. And that was me in that scenario. And it was 50 people watching me thinking, who is this crazy guy at the front? Let's just get these vows over with so we can get back to our party. But I got thinking, you know, putting myself in their shoes. I grew up in the church, so sometimes you take these things for granted. You know, like Palm Sunday when Jesus comes in, people are waving palm branches. That's normal to me. But someone who has no context, that's a weird thing to see, a church waving palm branches. They have no context for that. Sam Simpson, who, who came to faith later, and we've known Sam's journey. Sam, what was it like when you first saw communion? Everyone was doing shots on a Sunday morning, right? Like you have no concept for what this was. <laughs> those smirks, they, they, those smirks the, the, you know, the people start getting restless of what you're saying. They reminded me of you know, when I was in high school and I was, a Christ, I was that Christian kid in high school that went to youth group and that everyone makes fun of nowadays. And you know, talking to friends, not that I was really that outspoken, but still when the topic would come up, I was generally known that I was a person of faith, that I was a Christian, that I was a good kid. You know, it brought me back to those days where you start to see the smiles amongst your friends because they think you're kind of crazy. They think you're like a choir boy. You know what I mean? I was called a choir boy. That makes you feel great when you're on the football team and they call you a choir boy. That makes you feel great about yourself. It brought me back to that. You know, the word ludicrous, by the way, is not a rapper who comes in and makes an appearance in Justin Bieber's songs. It's a real word. Uh, the definition of ludicrous, I can't even say it without smiling. The definition of ludicrous is this. Something so foolish, 
so unreasonable or out of place as to be amusing. It's something so unreasonable, so out of place, something so out of the ordinary that it can't help but attract laughter. Someone has to be amused by that. That's what the definition of ludicrous means. And there was a time for you, if you got, especially if you became a Christian later on in life, there was probably a time for you when you can think back at some sort of Easter presentation, I'm looking at Sam, some sort of Easter presentation, when you're watching this display and you see like a, a, a reenactment of a man hanging from a cross and you have no idea what's going on, you think, this is, this is complete ludicrous. Like, I'm, I'm, I can't help but smile of what's going on if you have no context. <laughs> there was a time when you were there, right? Some of you in the room, like, you remember when, the, when this faith, this might be normal to you now, but when you remember the, when this faith, the first time you entered a church, this is, this is laughter-inducing. Some of you, we've, we've been able to, Nikki and I have been able to see when you got, became a Christian and then just the walk of faith and the difference that in your life, maybe the, one of the biggest differences is just your comfort with this crazy message that we talk about all the time. Now, this might surprise you, but here's kind of what I'm going to push this morning as we look in our passage. I don't want to lose how ludicrous this sounds. In fact, I want to wrestle with how ludicrous. I want, I want us to laugh in reaction to the things that God does because it's so crazy. It's so ludicrous. We can't lose it. We can't become bored with it. You might have thought of why, why, why I'm going I'm to stand up here and explain why it isn't ludicrous. Why we shouldn't laugh at it. Why we shouldn't... Why it's just a nice, boring message that everyone knows. In our quest, sometimes I think to over-explain, to over-rationalize. We make God nice and safe. We dull the edge of the message. And then maybe people won't laugh at it anymore. It's reasonable. It's easy to believe. It's rational. We dull the edge so we don't elicit that type of response like the kid who's my friend who's sitting beside me in that high school bus. I don't want him to laugh at this message. I don't want him to laugh at who I am. So let's dull the edge a little bit, make it a little bit easier to believe. I think there's a danger of transforming into this this faith into something that we expect, something that's unsurprising, something that's frankly boring. I think churches all over the place have done that. They've taken this faith that is clearly laid out in the Bible, and they've made it something that's just, to be honest, kind of tedious. It's more about socials, and there's nothing wrong with socials. But trust me, if your message is more about how, how great your pies are than the, go- how, the ludicrousness of the gospel, something's gone wrong. The nature and mission of God and what he calls us to do and your purpose in it has become such a bore. It's so unattractive that we're more concerned with other things. But guys, we can't lose this. The nature of faith itself is often unrealist, un- unreasonable, crazy, absurd, even amusing. Here's kind of my point, guys. You're, we are a ludicrous people. And we believe in ludicrous things. Amen? We are. We are a ludicrous people who believe in ludicrous things. We just got to own it. We believe in things that are completely irrational to most people. That even it elicits a response of laughter. Like, how could you pause? Really? 
In fact, that's now how I share the, usually how I share the gospel. I'm, yeah, I'm that crazy person who thinks this is, this is true. I know you think that's crazy, but I am one of those people who you think is crazy that believes this is true. We are a ludicrous people who believe in ludicrous things. Because God does ludicrous stuff. Just own it. Because I think we have to be careful here. Sometimes, I think, so, we, we think Christian conversion isn't just, it's not just people whose views of God have changed from unbelief in the ridiculous to belief in the tedious. God was too exciting. He was too outrageous. He's too dangerous. Now he's dull enough to, now that I can believe in him. We are a ludicrous people. Okay? Look what it says in Genesis 21. We're almost done this sermon. Next week is Easter. We're going to finish it off. We'll, I'll, I'll let you know what we're, where we're going after Easter, but so it says in Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Now, if you haven't been tracking with us, I'll explain that in a second. That's a crazy statement. And maybe the most shocking thing is how <laughs> understated it seems. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, which means laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old. Now sometimes the Bible has crazy instances of ages that is not... In our context, it seems almost unbelievable. But even in this day, in the narrative of this scripture, it is clear that it was impossible on their own for Abraham and Sarah to become pregnant. But his son Isaac was born to him. And in verse 6, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. She says that positively. That's a positive thing. I want them to laugh at how crazy this is. And she says, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And of course the answer is no one would say. It's it's not possible. Now, this has been building for a long time. This is week number nine in our series. This has been building for a long time throughout these last few chapters as we've gone through and walked this, this journey through Abraham and Sarah's lives. This has been building for a long time. In Genesis chapter 12, eight chap- or nine chapters ago, Abraham is given a vision by God. He was called out of a place called Ur. He was given a vision by God and says, you, this, there's a specific place I have prepared for you. I'm going to give you, and through you, I'm going to bless the world, which means you're going to have, you're going to have offspring. They didn't have any offspring at the time. And even at that time, they thought, this is unbelievable. But then as years and years and years went on, and God had done amazing things through them. As Abraham left Ur and went to this land of Canaan, which God promised to him. And just as a review, we, we believe that Genesis 12, as it says in that vision in Genesis 12, which is an amazing description of what faith is, faith begins with a vision that God gives you that maybe no one else sees, but he's given it to you. And a, prom- and, and a promise that's based upon that vision says this is what's going to happen regardless of, of, of everything else that goes on, regardless of even if you obey, this is what's going to happen. And then that vision, next step, 
is a, it's, it, 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 it's a conviction. It's like I've seen this vision. I've, I know the promise that God has given me, and, and now I am compelled. I am convicted to pursue it. And that's what makes you a crazy person, maybe, in the eyes of the world, because they have not seen the same things that you have. They have not understood the same promises that you have, and you have different convictions than they do. That's why you're crazy. So faith begins with the vision and then a conviction, and then faith is not complete without the action. You actually have to follow it. It's not enough to say, wow, that looks amazing. Man, I'm convicted in that, but if you don't follow, it's not faith. But Abraham does. Certainly not perfectly. And God was with him every step of the way, and more, there's more to the story than just Abraham's faith. It's about God's faithfulness to him. And Abraham and Sarah, man, I could list out all the things that we've talked about as we've gone through this series, but Abraham and Sarah have been the recipient of so many miracles that Abraham was saved from uh, this, this civil war that was going on in this, in this place. They were saved a couple times from, from uh, Sarah being taken by world leaders and then being given back, and it was God who intervened. All of these things, they've been the recipient of so many miracles and blessings from God, but the greatest one was kind of hanging over you the whole time as you read. Because the greatest one, the one they were always waiting for, was birth. Like all those other things were like, okay, yes, God has granted them miracles, but for the last nine chapters we've been waiting, okay, when is this birth? Like this is the promise. When is the birth going to happen? And finally in Genesis 21, it happens just the way that God has said it was going to happen. In verse 1, perhaps, as I said, perhaps the greatest shock is just how understated it sounds. I mean, this building for nine chapters, and it just, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and she conceived. It's like, we've been waiting nine, we've been waiting nine weeks for this. Finally, it happens. It's, it's, it's kind of funny how understated it is. It's almost assumed that it would happen. Just the way God said it was. You miss how crazy this is. You know, there's the repeat passages. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and, said, and bore Abram a son at the time in which God had spoken to him. You see how see, this is cementing the fact that this is happening exactly the way that God had said it was going to happen. It's cementing in the narrative that this is the work of God. This is what we call glorious. This transcends human experience. This is not like Abraham and Sarah were really good moral people or were trying to keep in tip-top physical condition so that they could have a child. This was impossible. This was a miracle that only God could do. It transcends human experience. To the finite, skeptical mind, this can't happen. It cannot happen. It's impossible. The point of this passage is, at least in the beginning, even though it seems understated, is that only God can make this happen. Only God can make this happen. When it says God, it said the Lord visited Sarah. It's a really interesting word. You know, we use the word visit when we knock on each other's door. If I was to visit the freers, I would knock on their door and be like, I'm coming for a visit. And when you're at your door, it's, you kind of don't have a choice at that point. It's like, I'm coming. I'm, in, I'm here. I'm visiting this home. And it's interesting that all throughout the Old Testament, when it talks about God visiting, that's what we call divine intervention. It's almost like when God shows up at your door, something's going to happen that 
you can't make happen. It's like when God knocks on your door, he's going to do something divine, which means he's going to do something that only he can do. That's what it means when God visited. Now, sometimes that was in judgment. It says when God visited his people, it's like you knock, knock on your door. I got bad news. You made some mistakes here. And you might have to pay the consequences. But there's other examples in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, where it says God visited the people and it was the end of a famine. It's like, oh, that's something only God can do. Jeremiah 29, verse 10 talks about how when the people were brought into exile under what a nation called the Babylonians, it says, and I will visit my people after 70 years, and it says that will take them out of exile. Something that only God can do. It says when God, the, the sense is that when God visits, he knocks on your door, that's what we call divine intervention. It's I'm going to do something that only I can do. And that's the picture of Christian conversion. Right? When someone comes to faith in Jesus, it's an act that only God can do. Yes, we follow and obey and, and have free will that we can follow, but it, the, the sense of conversion is like Jesus is knocking at your door. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing something that only I can do. You can't save yourself. That's what vi- God visiting means. And when God showed, he answered and protected the promise so that it happened just as he said it would. A couple weeks ago, if you were with us as we were going through the series, Genesis 18, just three weeks ago, we looked at that, that there were three visitors that visits. And I believe you know, God himself, or at least a messenger from God, showed up to Abraham and Sarah and said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get pregnant. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna give birth. Just as, just as I say it's going to happen, you're going to name him Isaac. All of these things. And he protects this promise so as to happen just as he said it would happen. And we don't get a ton of scenario or atmosphere of what the reaction was when this divine birth happens. We don't get really a mood, like whether they threw a party or a celebration. I don't really know. But you can imagine some of the reaction. We get this amazing little phrase. Now, Sarah doesn't look great in these passages. Like as we've gone through, Sarah doesn't look amazing. Her character doesn't look great. But she says these amazing verses in verse 6. After Isaac is born, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I've borne him a son in his old age. I think she summarizes or encapsulates this very real response to the visitation of God when God does things that only he can do. Isaac's name literally means laughter. Now remember the profoundness of this. Don't miss what's going on. In Genesis 18, Sarah laughs. But what was the reason for her laugh? When God tells her, this is what's going to happen, Sarah, what was the reason for her laugh? This is insane. This is absurd. It's, this is impossible. It's almost like you're joking, right? This, 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 is, this is so ludicrous. You can't help but laugh at it. In Genesis 18, that's, that's what her response of laughter is. If you remember when we, if I invite you to check out that sermon a couple weeks ago called Circumstantial Faith. 
laughter in that passage represented this conversion, convergence that we all feel in faith. And maybe if you struggle in faith, you, you feel this convergence of here's the promise of God. This is what he says is going to happen. This is how he says things are. And yet, on the other hand, you see the impossible realities of life and then you bring those things together and it's like they don't completely fit together. It's almost so absurd or impossible. It's God, this is what you say things are supposed to be and yet all I see is this. How does this even function? Well, Sarah is going through the same process. She can't help but laugh because this is an impossible. God, you say I'm gonna have a baby, but I can't. It's impossible, I can't do it. We've tried for years. I cannot do it. Sarah receives this promise, but this cannot be. It's the, God, you are in control, but evil rages in the world. Like, how do you, even I, like, how do you put those things together? It's the, God loves me, but so why is there so much suffering that I'm going through? Why is there so much pain? You know what I'm saying here? Like, this is the promise of God, and yet this is the impossible reality of life. And how do you, how do you put those things together? It seems absurd. It seems ludicrous. It's the Jesus is coming back, but time ticks slowly on and on and on and on and on. Like, how do you put those things together? I mean, you fill in the blank with what you struggle with in faith. It's the, here's what God has promised, but this is what I see in front of me. It just doesn't make sense. God is impossible. You know, it seems the appropriate response to this very real dilemma is a laughter at the absurdity or the incredulity is probably a better term of faith. God, how can I believe this to be true? It's the sense in Psalm 77, the psalmist wrote these words when, when he believes in God and yet he sees what the reality in front of him in Psalm 77 says, will the Lord reject forever? Like he's questioning God, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? This is from the Psalms, by the way. Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? You see what I'm talking about? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? You prayed those prayers? Well, that's what laughter represents. This is ludicrous. See, now we come full circle, though, a couple chapters later, and that impossible, absurd promise comes true. Here's the point I want to make, though. You notice Sarah. She doesn't become this stoic. She doesn't dull the message of God or the, the act of God. So now it's more believable. Her reaction doesn't change. How does she react to the to the fulfillment of the promise? What does she do? She laughs. But not in incredulity. What does she laugh in? Joy. This ludicrous faith. Because God does ludicrous things. And the response is still the same. It elicits laughter. Because no one does this stuff. I didn't think of it. And no one can do this stuff. But that's what faith is all about. Her reaction doesn't change. That boy, Isaac, the profoundness of his name meaning laughter is that it was a response of, of, of Sarah as, as a laughter of incredulity, but now is a laughter of joy. Because she knows it's still completely ludicrous. <laughs> Guys, 
every year at Easter. We celebrate a dead person who walked again. That doesn't happen. You ever seen that happen before? I've seen it happen in in the movie called World War Z, in a zombie flick. I've never seen it happen, though, with my own eyes. We celebrate a dead person who walked again. It's crazy. You know, Jesus said to his disciples before he was crucified, as we kind of go through this week, in this Passion Week, he said to his disciples beforehand, he tells them exactly what's going to happen. I will be betrayed. This is word for word what he says. I will be betrayed. I will be killed. And after three days, what will happen? I will rise. He told them exactly what was going to happen beforehand. Put yourself in the disciple. What do you do? How do you react when your teacher, this person that you're following says, guys, here's what's going to happen. In just a few days, they're going to, I'm going to be betrayed by one of you. I'm going to be killed, but don't fret. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. How do you react to that? This is crazy. Or they had no idea what he was actually saying. Probably a little bit of both. It's crazy. And after the struggle of the Passion Week, the incredulity of a faith in question as Jesus is killed, it's like, what was all of this for? You see, this is the promise of God that he was going to rise, and then here's the impossible situation that he's dead. You see, the laughter of incredulity, what was all that? We've just wasted three years of our lives. There's no, we, don't, we can only react in laughter at the absurdity of it all. And he rises. <laughs> he rises from the dead. And what was their reaction? Shock first. But you know what their reaction was after, right? Laughter. Of joy. Because we are blown away. Because God does crazy stuff. And we are just called to have faith in it. I think the struggle of incredulity and waiting and the joy of realization are going to be a part of every person's faith journey. Some of you have... Laughter is supposed to be a healthy part of Christian response as we wait for the promise and as we see it fulfilled. You know, when you pray for things that are impossible, your response is supposed to be laughter at how impossible or crazy this sounds. But also when it happens, when God does things that are impossible, we also react in laughter. Guys, do you see my point? Don't dull the edge of this crazy message to make it more believable. It's, it's ludicrous. They both underscore the laughter that God promises and does ludicrous things. Jared, I promised you I'd be shorter today. Can you put on the screen? Here's what I want you what, what time is it? What time is it, Sam? Oh, shoot. Five minutes, okay? Here's you got five minutes. If you want to, this is a time. Usually we want to give people time to fellowship and ask questions, or if you want to come talk to me and pray through things. Here's, here's what I want to leave you with, okay? As we look at this passage, God doing the impossible and believing that God does the impossible. Here's three things to wrestle with for you. First one is this. Do we anticipate visitation? 
You can write it down if you want, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you if you want to talk to the people around you and just kind of challenge ourselves in our faith. Do we, do, we, do we purposely try to make faith boring, tedious? We don't expect God to do anything that we can't do ourselves? Do we, that's my point. Do we ever anticipate his visitation? Him showing up to knock at the door to do things that only he can do? Because that's what visitation is. Guys, what, what, what things do you pray for? Like, do you pray for things that you can do? Or do you pray for things that only God can do? Do we ask for his glory? That's the first one. That'll, that'll make you know whether you believe in a boring faith or, you, or a ludicrous one. Secondly, are we ever surprised? Is God ever, is God just predictable? He acts the way you act. He responds the way you respond. Basically a bigger form of me. Is he ever predict, is, is he ever, is he just predictable? Sometimes that means any change in doctrine or belief. You know, this is God because this is what I'm comfortable with. Never learn, you never grow, you're never challenged. It's very predictable because he's basically a form of me. Maybe bigger. Thirdly, do we have nice or radical obedience? What, I, what I'm saying is this. You notice Abraham's response in the passage? It says, God did things that only he can do. As it says, he visited Sarah as he had said did to Sarah as he had promised. She conceived at the time which God had spoken to him. And then it says this, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah had bore him, Isaac, because God told him to. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, which didn't happen in that day. This is like a new thing, which is so it's kind of crazy. He circumcised his son Isaac just as God had, you see it in the passage, as God had commanded him. Abraham's response, specific response, was because of God's precise, specific answer. A nice God demands a nice response. We're nice people. Because we believe in a God that's just kind of predictable, he's tedious, he's boring, doesn't do anything out of the ordinary, so we're nice people. Or do we, we respond with radical obedience to do things that sometimes we're not comfortable with? A ludicrous, a ludicrous one demands radically ludicrous, a radically ludicrous response. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you do the impossible. May we never lose how ludicrous this really is. We believe in a man who came to earth to die on a cross and be raised again. <laughs> I didn't write that story. I can't do that. Our faith is based upon crazy things. Things that only you can do. Things that are glorious. Lord, may we not be a church that just dulls the edge off of faith dulls the edge off of obedience so that it's nice and believable and acceptable. We are a ludicrous people who believe ludicrous things because you are a great God who does things that we don't do. 
than we be. God, we love you. We pray for all these things in your great name. Amen.